0: There's no way they could f- that up. And if they do, uh, I don't know. I might cry.
1: Radio-drome. Welcome to a sleazy, underhanded radiodrome. Well, it won't be that sleazy, it won't be that underhanded. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil Shows Up Sometimes.
0: Yes, I do. <laughs> you do? sometimes.
1: And Peter usually shows up, but last week was his birthday, so he had off.
0: Yep, yeah, I might still be hungover,
1: too. Yes, if you talk to him at all, that's a good possibility. And <laughs> sitting in for this for this special episode is Frederick Fritz, who a lot of people seem to like on this show, and I don't get why. Payoffs. Speaking of payoffs, adamandeve.com. You go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free clit bumper, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. This week we're going to talk about pulps and specifically why the pulps don't seem to translate to a modern audience. And what I mean by this is the old pulp stories from the 1920s and even some before that through the 1930s and 1940s. You know, you had Tarzan and John Carter, famous authors like H.P. Lovecraft and that cutting their teeth. And this week, with the massive flop that is Legend of Tarzan, it seems to be yet another nail in the theory that just... The pulps do not translate to a modern audience for some reason. A couple of years ago, John Carter flopped horribly. Every Tarzan movie outside of Disney's Tarzan has flopped horribly since the 80s. The Sheena TV series flopped. The late 90s, Conan and Tarzan series flopped. The Shadow and the Phantom in the 90s flopped. For some reason, the pulps don't seem to translate to a modern audience well. Why do you think the pulps cannot seem to make it to a modern audience?
2: I think in the cases uh, like you just mentioned, they were kind of I mean, they're good examples, but they're also flawed examples like John Carter would have done better. It like uh, it's gotten a bit of a cult following and it was just incredibly mismarketed, which was one of the major reasons why it failed so hard. The new Tarzan, I think that uh, a large part of that is because Tarzan is something that has been done so many times did, was anybody really asking for another, you know, big budget Tarzan movie? I mean, it's been done in the past really well. It's just something that's just been done to death at this point. So I think that that's a largely why that didn't work. But as far as a lot of things, I just don't think they give it enough attention. I mean, there there's a certain there's a certain way to handle them that you can do them and do them right. Something like John Carter, they, they actually did put the effort in and they made it good. I actually really thoroughly enjoy John Carter. I mean, it's a little heavy handed on the CG, but it still is a really highly entertaining film. And I think that a lot of them, they'll change too much or they'll kind of do a uh, you know, they'll do a movie in name only. You know, here's an adaptation of this. Really, it's just we're we're doing, we're taking the name we're taking this the idea and then we're doing something completely different with it. So they don't really, uh, they don't really take the original source material into the story and whatnot as much as they should.
0: I think as far as Tarzan goes, people might be uh bored of it because we're constantly getting the same Tarzan story as far as the movie goes, like even Disney's Tarzan and then this one. It's always, it's the same, shit. you know, it's Tarzan and Jane, Tarzan fights some apes, Tarzan fights some, you know, hunter dudes or whatever. And it's it's just kind of the same old crap. It would be nice if we got something that was more in tone with uh, John Carter and something that was maybe a higher budgeted, um, I think it's like the epic legend of tarzan or something it's it's the one uh, from the 90s where he actually fights lizards and stuff tarzan Um, the epic adventures tarzan the epic adventures yes that one i thought was a good example of doing something actually different with the character where the story is actually expanded but they had no budget and obviously the show didn't do too well because it was only one season and i think one or two tv movies but andrew devoff was an amazing villain as the son of the russian czar Yes, that show was really entertaining and I would like to see something more in tone with that done with Tarzan. And I think that that might be the problem is, is that we're just getting the same version of it. It's always just Tarzan's in the jungle, there's some jungle beasts, and there's like a hunter guy, and he's evil, and he's rich, and Tarzan's got to fight him and rescue Jane. It's it's just always the same shit, so it'd be nice to get something, mix it up a little bit, because yeah, the Tarzan we're getting, it's, it's the same deal, only this time he's wearing skinny jeans, and they're rolled up to his ankles, and I don't know how that would better your agility. That makes no sense for a jungle man. Pulp, uh, I think as far as Pulp Fiction, ironically enough, Pulp Fiction in general goes audiences do tend to like it because i mean tarantino in himself does kind of make pulp movies they're the the style in which he does is very you know sleazy gritty crime obscure novels about sex and violence and weird shit like he he tends to make stuff like that and it, it seems to sell but i think when other filmmakers adapt the the pulp novels and the pulp styles like when phantom came out uh when the other tarzan's came out when um the the conan tv show and and john carter and stuff like that in my opinion they're too polished i think the people that are ex- them see the trailers and they're like this looks too shiny it's not dirty enough it's not fun enough it's not over the top enough and i think that's what you need in a pulp movie like if you if you remember the phantom movie that came out the one with uh, billy zane i enjoyed that movie to a degree but i feel like it's trying too hard to have a, a 50s aesthetic while still looking really clean but being too afraid to actually be over the top and weird and and kind of kind of sleazy and kind of grimy which which pulp really works with pulp is something that that belongs to a certain audience and and the people who really like it will go see it and when they see that the material is being treated you know so softly and so safely they're probably not going to be overly interested in it because if you look at tarantino's movies they make money and they're pulp films and then you look at something like john carter or the new tarzan that's coming out yeah it's based on Pulp, uh, pulp novelizations and pulp comics and stuff, but it ain't no f-ing pulp movie
3: of any era. We're probably in a very pulp-centric era as far as entertainment is concerned. Uh, it's just it's not the Tarzan or Doc Savage, Man of Bronze films. It's everything from Doctor Who to Pirates of the Caribbean to The Walking Dead. These are all modern iterations of pulp, Uh, they really are, because what we're talking about here is not so much pulp stories, which were just stories published in pulp magazines, but pulp serials. To, To your question more directly, I think it's really just a matter of the time period and who they were written for, I mean these stories were written during A lot of them during the Great Depression. It was a horrible time. People needed escapism. And, you know, I'm sure being Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, when you and your children had no food, probably seemed like a pretty good escape. King of your Mm. kingdom, if you will isolated, but yet you're, you know, you're powerful, you're in control, especially for men. That was a story that did appeal to men back then because they were powerless. They were watching their families go hungry. They weren't job. They didn't feel like men. Come on. Tarzan is virile and strong and, I mean, even the animals, you know, obey him.
1: Almost all the original pulp stories were male power fantasies basically.
3: Completely. Mm -hmm. And that's because they were designed to be. That's who they were generally aiming at. Now, mind you, that particular group because there are so many types of pulp stories there are romance pulps western pulps and of course the what we're talking more about the science fiction fantasy pulps and each of them was aimed at their demographic and I don't feel that today, these work today. That's why you can't do a literal task. I think we talked about this before, but I don't think you can have like the Lone Ranger today, not because that the Lone Ranger is flawed or bad, but how do you do the Lone Ranger in a period when we've had everything from the Sam Peckinpah Westerns to the Sergio Leone Westerns to, you know, miniseries like Lonesome Dove, where this brutality became very obvious from that time period. The Lone Ranger isn't a bad thing. It just can't survive in today's mentality. And like, here's an example. Uh, Blade Runner is, to me, like a 1980s film. It's very pulp, if you think about it, the way it's designed. It's very oh, absolutely. well
1: absolutely. Well, and, and Philip K. Dick cut his teeth on the pulp magazine. Yes. So very much so.
3: So we see Blade Runner. Well, we go from Star Wars to Blade Runner. And so where do we go from there for a pulp? Well, The Matrix. Those are pulp films. Alright? They're not set in a jungle island. No, now you are the lord, not of the jungle, but of what, guys? The internet, the virtual world. It's still the same thing. It's still here. It's just turned into something else. It's addressing other issues for a generation that can absorb it.
1: And see... I don't disagree with you. I, I call those the children of the pulp. So I'll get to those in a minute. You, you, you actually hit on something really good there, Fred. This stuff has been done so many times. Like Really, when you break it down, Burroughs' John Carter stories invented, essentially, what we would call the space opera. But there are so many things that borrowed from John Carter, not the least of which is Star Wars, and then all the people that borrowed from that, that if you adapted any of the John Carter stories, now you would go, been there, done that, so many people have borrowed from it, they've actually kind of wrecked the original in a way, haven't they? Kind of like, and I always bring up this film, To Live and Die in L.A. That was the first film to establish a whole bunch of things that became action movie cliches, to the point where when you watch it now, you go, this movie is so cliche-ridden. But it was the one who invented mm-hmm. the cliches! So mm-hmm. I think you're right, Fred. So many people have borrowed from John Carter the books, that the books have lost some of their luster. Is that interpreting you properly that's an element of it yes that's
3: that's key to it it's that's only part of it i was also saying the meant the the escapism it's a different they're looking for a different form it's a different structure of the world is what i'm trying to say because you're right these those guys were all the seeds all right they planted the seeds and they've been done over and over and over um everybody knows clearly star wars is flash gordon and all that now yeah they we've we've outgrown them but they also don't fit Times either. I mean, if you look at most heroes, they fit their time. They really do. Now we can do films set in those periods, no doubt, especially if they somehow still work. I mean, look at Zorro. Why does Zorro still work? Well, I think we're always going to have the poor, you know, and and so he still translates today. Whereas, again,
1: Tarzan, not so much. Then let's look at the children of the pulps. Now, obviously, the pulp writers. So many of what we consider the greatest writers in this field i I mean of the literary field you've got harlan ellison edgar rice Burroughs, arthur conan doyle philip k dick william Burroughs, paul anderson isaac asimov alfred bester robert block ray bradbury agatha christie arthur c clark f scott fitzgerald robert heinlein o henry frank herbert robert e howard l ron hubbard fritz lieber jack london h.p lovecraft h.g wells and even mark twain all started in the pulps look at all the people who were influenced by their works and then you look at all the people who grew up on the pulps not the least of which would be george lucas and steven spielberg they have made their love of the pulps completely known and i think that's a good thing but that said Look at the children of the pulps in the fact of modern characters that are essentially pulp characters. You tell me that Snake Plissken, Indiana Jones, James Bond, John McClane, RoboCop, Hannibal Lecter—these are pulp characters, just not from the pulps, aren't they? Aren't Mm. these the children of the pulps?
2: Pulp characters brought into uh, you know not current current times, but more current times.
1: I look at Snake Plissken as an 80s pulp hero. Isn't he basically that? I mean, if, if Snake Plissken... Snake Pliskin could honestly translate quite well to a 1930s pulp story without a whole lot of change, couldn't he?
0: Yeah, I agree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at a character like Snake Plissken, I mean, that's very much like a 1940s, 1950s, like, badass a detective or mercenary character and many many of the other ones are i mean if you look at robocop robocop was originally meant to be judge Dredd. you know the 2000 ad a very pulpy in nature uh indiana jones again that was based on uh like the old serials, the black and white serials of uh a character who even the way indiana jones looks was based on those the hat the jacket the whip hopping around on you know wagon cars and stuff and uh avoiding drops off of big cliffs and and you know battling it out in the desert these are clearly uh children of popes pulp, uh pulps we're seeing that with everything else like of course star wars is is flash gordon and and it kind of continues uh along that way and i think that's that's how as uh, frederick said every generation has its own version of it like the reason why makes sense the reason why Tarzan was so popular is because everybody was so impoverished so to see this man that was like living out in the woods uh in the jungle completely living off the land not needing any clothes just hanging around flying around on vines and kicking ass you know just in his loincloth something very uplifting so I think um every most every uh iconic character that we see is a child of some form of, of old-school pulp that came a generation or two beforehand. I, I think that's pretty cool. I mean,
1: obviously Carpenter was a Western-influenced individual, but the Westerns were influenced by the pulps. Do you think that it's impossible to accurately adapt any of the old pulp stories? Like, like, Could you adapt Princess of Mars actually like it was written nowadays, or would you have to change it like the John Carter movie did? Two of the most successful pulp characters that have been thrust into modern culture and with movies that worked radically changed how to change their source material. And that would be H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator was changed quite a bit for 1985's Reanimator. And as much as I love John Milius' Conan, that is not the Conan of Robert E. Howard. That is the Conan of L. Sprague de Camp. It's, they're very, very changed to make them work. Is it impossible to get an accurate Princess of Mars nowadays? The Asylum did Princess of Mars. Strangely enough, better than the actual John Carter movie. And that's sad because that one had Tracy Lords in it. Saying it's closer to the source material or you're saying it's better than... The, than the other one. It's closer to the source. The Asylum version is closer to the source material than the damn Disney movie is. That's sad to me. I wouldn't
2: say it's sad. I mean, it's uh, it's different. You know, they... The Asylum isn't known for um, really changing much whenever they get uh, the rights to something. Well, not so much the rights to something because it was public domain. That whenever they have something that is either public domain or uh, they're doing a variation of it, like, uh, you know, what they did with... Um, War of the Worlds, they uh, they don't really do too much to change it. So with this, whoever, uh, the guy who wrote it also directed it. So he probably uh, was already familiar with it and then just kind of did a very close to, you know, adaptation of it. And it was just the easiest
1: way to do it. But I guess my question, my follow-up question to you then is, what about tonally do you have to do to bring these things up like I said with reanimator they darkened the tone quite a bit from lovecraft's original story but in the case of like the shadow and the phantom in the 90s they were bad movies but they felt like pulp movies they felt like the source material the tone was right it was just the script was wrong, whereas in a case like Reanimator, the tone was wrong for accurately adapting the source material, but the script was dead on. Is there a balance you have to you have to hit between tone and and story?
2: I mean there's always a, a, a very thin line that you have to to you know walk across of bal- of you know between the tone and whatnot so uh, sometimes, in the case of something like uh, Reanimator, they saw that uh, maybe the tone that they would have had to go for wasn't really going to work with what the movie that they wanted to make. So they changed it and made it, uh, you know, darker with uh, you know a fairly heavy dose of comedy in there, and made it the classic that it is today. They had followed it very closely to Lovecraft. It's possible it might not have worked. Uh, see, whenever you're jumping media whenever you're going from you know a book to a movie or a movie to a book or a video game to a movie or something there's always going to be a give and take there's always going to be things that need to be changed and things that need to be truncated or altered or, or the tone needs to change in one way or another so while you want to try to keep it as close as to the original material as possible uh, it's never going to be 100% you're always going to have to uh, you know make some changes here and there to make it work and when the people that are working on the film they have the very difficult decisions of well what can we change what can we get away with what's going to work what's not going to go over well with the audience and sometimes it's a crapshoot you know you got to go with your gut and say all right, I think that this needs to be changed this isn't going to work and they cut that out and hopefully they're making the right decisions sometimes they do and sometimes they don't
1: one of the biggest things they usually have to cut out is the rampant racism especially if you're in a lovecraft tale well <laughs> you know it was a, it was a different time and, no uh, i think lovecraft he has a poem called on the creation of niggers that is about how black people are the castoffs from when god made man Come back from hell. That's a hatred of black people. That's not a different time.
0: It's uh, I don't know. It's that's a whole other thing. With Phantom, as I said, I like it, but it it has that weird tinge of you know '90s movie trying to have that '50s aesthetic. Like it's very clean looking while trying to be pulpy, and I always found it very strange. Same with the Shadow. When it comes to something like Reanimator, I really liked what Yuzna and gordon did with that movie uh and there, the other the other pictures they've made too like from beyond which is uh pretty brilliant in terms of taking the short story and continuing it essentially is what that movie is from beyond um, is basically a sequel because yeah. the first
1: six minutes of the movie are the entire original from beyond story and the rest of it is essentially yeah. a really cool sequel to lovecraft's original
0: yeah which is really really cool and um and what they did with with the first film with Reanimator, yeah, there are a, a lot of changes. For one, like Herbert West doesn't actually look like that. He's not described, you know, as a dark-haired short guy. He's more of like a a tall, severe-looking blonde guy. Uh, but also, really... the
1: original story is all told through, even though he doesn't, he didn't get a name. to the movie,
0: Dan's perspective. Yeah, and it also takes place, I believe, during which uh, it was during a war. It was during wartime, and they were using a lot of like corpses of soldiers and, and stuff like that. And yeah, there is a lot of racism in it too. But I, I felt like it still managed to keep the tone of of what I had read but they just they clearly wanted to make it in modern times like it's Miskatonic University but you know it's in the 1980s and you know it's Herbert West but it's a 1980s Herbert West so it's it's the same thing but they didn't want to I don't think they wanted to do a period piece with it I think they wanted to sort of update the material in present time while still doing something that really quite brilliantly captures the story with a lot of uh, a lot of moments and scenes that that describe that that showcase things that are described in the book like when you mean he's dead?
4: <laughs>
0: Not anymore. <laughs> best uh, best part of the whole movie. I love that scene. There's a great little moment where they, they sort of reenact um, a moment that's uh, described very vividly in the book where Herbert West is supposed to die in the book by getting pulled apart by a bunch of his own reanimated creations. And it's it's said that you only see it happen in silhouette the father of uh of herbert west's assistant or not the father of the, the father of the the girl he's dating uh when he comes in to try to save her after he was uh reanimated by the by the evil doctor guy they completely it's with a different character being pulled apart by a bunch of other uh reanimated monsters in the silhouette and everything so there were a lot of really nice throwbacks even though it wasn't exact i feel like it kept it in tone. It had um Reanimator has that perfect vibe to it that really makes it feel like a grimy pulp film. And there's a there's a lot of uh humor and satire in it as well that uh, that I believe uh, Lovecraft was also very well known for. He was he was good at at crafting characters in that way. That that's one of the examples of, of a really, really well done adaptation of something that's pulpy and and doing it in a really cool way and not only just adapting it well but also kind of putting your own own spin on it by making it take place in contemporary times and actually doing it well because a lot of stories that up pretty badly
3: well, first, let me just say you haven't seen Reanimator till until you've seen it in a room full of drunk doctors with a bunch of drunk doctors. <laughs> I, I just want to point that out. Is I this that coming experience. from experience? Yes, it is, and it was a very wild experience. The answer, I think, has already been given, and the answer is yes, they have to be adapted. They have to be changed. I mean, obviously, a, a short isn't going to make an hour and a half film, uh, but one of the things brought up that I think is interesting was The Shadow, directed by Russell Mulcahy. First, let's say five to ten minutes of that movie— is what the entirety of the movie should have been. And I think that's interesting because that's the most pulpy of the movie. Now, I don't mean that, you know, there are stuff that takes place in a time period and, you know, it's got the ditzy dame and her father is the scientist. But they added this thing where they made the the villain of the piece was equal to the shadow. He had the exact same Talk about boring. And that was really more of a modern... Uh, thinking, I believe. Oh, you've got to have the equal-powered villain or slightly more powerful. You know, Luke needs his Vader. So the first 10 minutes of The Shadow is a better representation, I think, or a better adaption, even, of the Pulps. And when you talk to people about that movie, really seem to like that part of the movie. That comes up a lot when I hear people talk about it. The rest of the movie, eh, so-so. So I think you have to adapt to a certain degree. It's, it, it, You have to. There's just nothing else you you can do i don't think the rampant racism as you said is a good example uh even for a gentler example blazing saddles is one of the most respected comedies around today but you couldn't do a movie like blazing saddles today okay and that movie is anti-racism but you still couldn't get away with that with what's going on right now culturally so no no you couldn't adapt those literally not even with tongue-in-cheek
1: well we're gonna take a quick break i interviewed buzz dixon most of you might know him as a writer for G.I. Joe, Transformers, He-Man, and so many cartoons and comic books and whatnot, he's an avid Pulp fan. I sat down and talked with him about this, and we'll be back after that with our thoughts. So, Buzz, you're a fan of the Pulp stories and their television and movies and serials and whatnot. Why do these things not seem to work on not even just a modern audience, but even back into the 70s and 80s, these things just didn't seem to translate well? What is it about the pulps that doesn't move to film very
4: well? Well, if you're talking about the the classic pulps, the actual pulp magazines themselves, part of that was that the experience was literally the purple prose in them. They They could be written in a very stylized manner that you get a certain feeling from it reading it but when you try translating it into a film you realize you know it's you can have a very you know elaborate description oh it was a dripping horrible mess that was creeping you know like that but then when you've actually got to show it it's like well what am i actually seeing here that was part of it another problem was was that they were very deliberately um Crafting stories that were, uh, I don't want to say stereotypical, but let's say art- archetypical. And as a result, they did not put as much um, attention into the character development of supporting characters and things like that. You know, you have your main characters, the shadow, the, you know, Doc Savage, uh, characters like this. If you're going up against, villains and whatnot. The villains have to be as good as the heroes. I mean, that that was the thing that made the uh, Bond novel so successful. The villains were as compelling and as interesting as Bond himself. So Bond was up against somebody who, who you know, had, had as much attention, got as much attention from the reader as Bond himself. A lot of the stories were very fast-paced, very well written in terms of keeping things happening. But they just lacked the complexity and structure that you really need in order to translate well into other media. You know, there were successful adaptations of the pulps in the 1920s and 30s. But as time went on, World War II, for example, changed a lot of of, uh, our perspective on how we viewed the world. These things couldn't, couldn't sustain themselves in the aftermath of World War II. The culture changed too much. You could never have had James Bond before nineteen forty if you had tried to do a James Bond novel before nineteen forty people would have said what are you this is this is horrible he's a sadist he's he's promiscuous he does all these things he's no hero we don't want to have this and they would have rejected it after World War II, That kind of a character became um i don't want to say acceptable, but that kind of character became believable it became some something that people would go, yeah, this would if if you were having this kind of a story happen, this would be the kind of person involved in it. And I think that's that's a great deal of what happened that kept a lot of the classic pulps from being able to make that jump. That that the fun of reading them, the the stylistic flourishes of the various writers, their ability to keep things happening at a fast pace and whatnot, the ability to write a story where the reader would fill in an enormous amount of details in their mind, that was all great on the printed page. But when you try translating that into a story, into a film or something like that, it becomes much more of a challenge.
1: Do you think it's something about how our sensibilities as an audience have changed. For instance, this weekend, Tarzan of the Apes, or sorry, Legend of Tarzan, is getting destroyed at the box office. And a couple of years ago, John Carter came out, and then in the '90s, we had the Phantom and the Shadow, and all of these pulp kind of heroes, and they just keep failing one after another. Yet ones like the Phantom, it was not a good movie, but it felt right. It felt like a pulp come to life it was just not a good movie do you think there has to be a balance between tone and an actual script that's good
4: oh absolutely absolutely i mean let's let's take tackle these in in turn i saw the phantom i enjoyed the phantom it it was as you say it was not a good movie but it was it was while you're watching it play out in front of you it was an entertaining movie i enjoyed it the problem is is that the the phantom has a very elaborate backstory and that's part of the fun of the phantom is this elaborate backstory and yet they couldn't successfully get that the the batman Batman's backstory is now so widely known by so many people, you only have to make an allusion to it to fill it in for, for audiences today. The Phantom has an equally complex backstory that when the Phantom was a popular comic strip, everybody, I won't say everybody, but the bulk of people knew that, that the Phantom was a, a, probably the latest of a long line of people who were fighting injustice in Africa. And, and they knew, you know, the one ring, the skull ring was, you know, the mark of warning. The P ring was the mark of protection. And he would leave his mark someplace to, to let people know this is protected by the phantom. I mean, there was this an enormous complex backstory that really enriched this character. But the problem was it was drawn for... 1920s and 1930s newsprint when it was created. And as a result, they had characters that had to look good on very cheap paper with very cheap printing processes. They didn't or they weren't able to figure out how to update that for modern times. I mean, you know, if anybody had asked me, I would have said, well, just keep them in the purple, you know, know, uniform. Just make it like Predator camouflage type stuff, you know, that, that he can, you know, flip a switch and he blends into the jungle and whatnot. So then you would go, okay, well, it's it's purple when it's inert, but when he turns it on, it becomes camouflage. So then a modern audience would have gone with it. But, you know, a modern audience looking at a, at a white guy in, in a skin-tight purple costume running through the jungle, it, it becomes too much of a challenge. It becomes too silly to them. The Shadow, I loved the Shadow movie. I had a really good time at it. But I also recognize that the the problem with the shadow again. Well, first off, you have to ask which shadow you're doing because there there are like three separate shadow storylines. You've got what was going on in the pulps. You have what was going on in the um, uh, the radio serial, and then you have what was being done in the movies because they don't all jibe with one another. It pushed some buttons the wrong way. The whole Middle East thing I mean, not Middle East, excuse me, Far East thing, going, you know, to see the uh the the Tibetan land and whatnot. I mean, this is something that's gonna be a challenge for the Doctor Strange movie as well. Modern audiences look at that, and it's not some mystical faraway land that nobody's been to. I mean, the Dalai Lama's on TV all the time. You hear about him on the internet and whatnot. People have some knowledge of these places now. And so they look at it, and they go, oh, you know, that's kind of corny. You know, it. it, it, it I don't want to say it's racist, but it's It's stereotypical. And it, it doesn't feel right, and it doesn't sit right. The John Carter it was defeated. It was it was a victim of its own success in this sense. Burroughs virtually invented the the space opera, the space romance type stories. You know where you go to a distant world and you have fantastic adventures, and he did it really well. I mean, the first couple of John Carter books are really well written, and and one of the later ones I can't remember which one it is. It's not a John Carter novel, but it's set on john carter's mars it's it's uh it's basically Burroughs' version of the ransom of red chief the hero is going after the kidnapped princess and the kidnapped princess is just the most annoying person in the world and uh, the hero and the princess's maid are going to go rescue her and they're fighting their way across mars to get there And when they finally get to the bad guy's place the bad guy's going oh thank god you're here you know she's she's driving me nuts take her go 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 and the hero goes mm, you know second thought, I don't want to rescue her. I'm, I'm, you know, I like the maid a lot more. Oh, no, no, no. I insist. I insist. You got here. You can rescue her. Take her, take her, her, you know. And it was funny because he, he upended the very stereotypical, not stereotypical, but the, the archetypical story that he created. And I think one of the problems that, that the John Carter movie had was that, you know, when people went in to see it, they were seeing an overly familiar story because everybody in their pet monkey has been ripping off John Carter for you know close to a century now and so they go in and they saw nothing they saw nothing new story wise they saw relatively few things that were new you know visually and most of the stuff that they saw if, if it had been dropped into a, um, a Star Wars movie you would have gone yeah yeah all right that's a Star Wars character Tars Tarkas Star Wars yeah sure absolutely
1: do you think that 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 is kind of the problem you mentioned that people had already seen the story before but is it that some of these old pulp characters have been I don't know misinterpreted in pop culture for instance like Conan the Barbarian I love John Milius' Conan but if you've ever read the original stories that what you would see on the screen, is the Sprague Conan, not oh. the Ro- not the Robert Howard Conan. Absolutely, absolutely. No. So, so do, do you think that the way audiences, like I, I remember one of the big questions everyone had about John Carter is, who the hell is John Carter? Sci-fi guys like you and I, we grew up reading John Carter, but your 16-year-old
4: mall brat has no idea who this character is. You're right. John Carter, as a name, doesn't sink in with with the average person luke skywalker they get they've heard of luke skywalker you know spock and mccoy but there are a lot of tv shows out there i mean if you were to um, i can't remember the name koenig i remember was the last name but i can't remember martin landau's character's first name if you mention his name from space 1999 most people have seen an episode of Space 1999, but the, the character name doesn't resonate with them. I'm, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but trust me, I'm, I'll, I'll bring it back. There's there's a whole concept in branding, in establishing an identity in in audiences. Basically, you have room for one or two category definers, and then you have a big gap where you've got the third place guy. And then after that, you got the, you know, the the very small ones, the wannabes that are chasing after. The classic example is Coca-Cola, Coke, Pepsi, and then you drop way down to RC Cola. Way after that, you've got all the little specialty brands. And this is what happens with Pulp Fiction. You have very few characters that have broken the public consciousness and the ones that have broken the public consciousness they get branded the public decides what they are most people if you say Tarzan they immediately think of of uh, Johnny Weissmuller because Johnny Weissmuller pretty much defined Tarzan in people's minds and and you try explaining to him no 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 Tarzan is actually you know he's very intelligent he's very capable he is he is comfortable with technology and whatnot and they just no that's not Tarzan Tarzan is me Tarzan you Jane you know that sort of thing they they've branded it one of the things that I thought was so brilliant about the Sherlock series on BBC was that they they correctly figured out we have to include everything that the public knows, and I'm making air quotes right here on my end of the conversation. We have to include everything that the public knows about Sherlock Holmes, but because we're moving him forward a century, we get to reinterpret that. But it has to happen. Holmes really isn't a pulp character in the classic sense, but he is he is similar enough that you can point to him and say, They they managed to update him. Tarzan, the big problem is this Tarzan worked in the early 1900s when white people ruled the world. I'm, I'm just going to be brutally honest here. You know, the, the, the obverse of Tarzan is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, because that shows what what was going on in Africa. And it, 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 it literally shows the opposite. It shows Kurtz in, in Heart of Darkness is somebody who has succumbed to Africa. He is not the white man who overcomes Africa. He's the white man who succumbs to it and is is fighting the war in Africa on, on a scale that, that Europeans just go, no, that's that's beyond the pale. We can't have that. And as, for those of you who are listening to the podcast who may not be aware, Heart of Darkness was set in 1900s Belgian Congo, but it was very easily adapted the Vietnam War by uh, Francis Ford Coppola as Apocalypse Now. It's a very faithful adaptation of the book, with the exception of the fact that they have changed the time and the locale. Other than that, it sticks pretty close to the book. I mean, following the, the adventures trying to track Kurtz down and stop him before you know things get completely out of hand. Tarzan was just a a wish fulfillment that oh, if I could just get out into the wild, if I could just become the noble savage. That was a concept that goes back to uh, Rousseau back oh 1700s or something like that, I believe. But it it reflected a mindset. The world today it recognizes this is not what we have in the world. It would be. I mean, I did a, a parody one time where where um, I was I was parodying a you know a typical 1950s sci-fi film, and they're having the scene where they're introducing all of the people in the story. And you know this is this is Doctor you know Jane Johnson, and she is one of the foremost astrophysicists in the world. We're so happy to have her on the team. Jane, why don't you go make some coffee for us? That happened in the 1950s. You couldn't do that today unless you were doing it as a parody, you know, and making fun of that attitude. But in the 1950s, oh yeah, she she would make the coffee even though she's the greatest astrophysicist in the world. Well, it's the same thing with the Tarzan books. Tarzan existed in a world that didn't really exist. I mean, Burroughs never went to um, to Africa. He never spent any time in Africa. He he knew doubtlessly. People who had been there, he had read stuff, he, he 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 incorporated his ideas in. But when you read the when you read the Tarzan books, the further you get into the Tarzan books, the crazier and the more fantastic they become. Because Burroughs was beginning to recognize, and the rest of the world was beginning to recognize by the nineteen twenties that what they thought was Africa was nothing like Africa at all.
1: That That's my point That about the pulps. They're the most fun when they're ridiculous, when they mm-hmm. do not take themselves seriously. Like, mm-hmm. the new Tarzan movie, it takes itself very seriously. The, the Tarzan mm-hmm. movie of 1984 with Christopher Lambert took itself almost deadly seriously, and it was a mm-hmm. dour slog. Then you yeah. look at the 1996 TV series, Tarzan, The Epic Adventures, it's fun as hell. There's lizard people and time travel and alternate worlds. And, I mean, it's basically Land of the Lost with Tarzan,
4: and it's super fun. It is. I grant you that. And and that was what Burroughs was beginning to figure out with Tarzan. They correctly identified that, you know, we, we cannot do a, quote, realistic Tarzan story, unquote, and by realistic, I mean realistic in terms of scale, because you just, it it becomes ridiculous. You, you have the classic image of Tarzan is, is a white guy, somehow miraculously clean-shaven, wearing a loincloth, going around barefoot in Africa, not suffering from heat stroke, not skin cancer from being exposed to the sun all the time, not having a thousand and one parasites in his system, leaping from tree to tree with great agility which is within the realm of possibility, okay, we'll give him that. That's that's not an impossible thing. But you know, he's encountering people that no longer existed even at the time that the first tarzan books were being written burroughs was basing his africa on what he read from explorers of a half a century earlier you have i mean I, I I hate to say this because i'm sure a lot of the people who wrote the pulps were not in their hearts and in their minds racist but they simply followed the path of least resistance and you have you know fu manchu you you cannot do fu manchu today period end of the story that is that is, no because that represents a a slur against asian people you can come up great asian villain i mean asian movies come up with asian villains all the time big trouble in little china did it exactly yeah you can do that but you can't do fu manchu tarzan at a certain point in the 1920s burroughs began to realize anything that tries to look like a realistic africa is is doomed to failure i might as well have fun i might as well meet little ant men i might as well find lost civilizations of romans bump into dinosaurs rolling around. Was, that's okay. That's your fantasy Africa. We can't have African natives. We can't have African Americans playing African natives because we're going to get accused of racism. Even in the 1940s, before the civil rights era, they couldn't do it. They ended up having a lot of, of uh, lost tribes that, are, that consist of white people in Africa in the Jungle Jim movies.
1: Well, because do you remember even there was that Sanford and Son episode that you could never do today?
4: What have you got against black
5: drivers?
4: I will not tolerate these outbursts. And you will restrict your inquiry to the matter before the court.
5: Well, that's that's what's wrong with the court, Judge. A black man ain't got a chance down here. I'm black. Well, you the judge, that don't count. Listen, why don't you arrest some white drivers? I do. You do? Well, where are they? Look at all these niggas in here. Look around here. There's enough niggas in here to make a Tarzan movie.
4: In the early 1930s, they could have you know the the black actors you know playing the playing those stereotypical roles. I mean, I I went to see with a friend of mine Chandu the magician a serial. Now, now there's a classic example for you. They Chandu the magician was a radio character, and and he's your standard Doctor Strange Lamont Cranston phantom, you know. Rich white guy gets bored goes off to the Himalayas learns fantastic magic abilities and you know comes back and and fights crime. In fact I would I would make a very strong argument that that most of Stan's inspiration for Doctor Strange came right out of Chandu. But he comes back and the movies have some of the most embarrassing scenes in them that were not done to be deliberately denigrating to people at the time. But again, as I say, it was just the path of least resistance. I was, I was watching, of all things, a, um, a Gene Autry movie set in South Africa. This One of Gene Autry's early films, for reasons too complicated to go into, they, they decide to set it in South Africa. He's, he's delivering a herd of wild horses to South Africa. And they proceed to do with um, smiley Burnett, blackface Rudahines, savages, cannibal cook pots, that whole thing, and it you know, it's just like no, this is not you know, I it, it you could argue it wasn't funny then, but I mean somebody thought it was funny because they put it in the movie, but it, it just it cannot fly today. And Tarzan, and I know they made a heroic effort no pun intended, to update him. Um, Tarzan is not in the books themselves. Tarzan is not a racist character. He accepts people as people. You know, you you just can't do it today because what we know of Africa doesn't, doesn't allow a Tarzan to exist, unfortunately.
1: Do you think that has to do with when you set it? Like, say you make a modern movie. You can set it in modern times, and then you have to update it, or you can set it in where it's supposed to, where the original story took place, but then you kind of have to deal with the the racial issues of the time. Like, you worked for Marvel Studios and Sunbow. I'm sure you know about why Lothar in Defenders of the Earth was no no longer in 1986, could be Mandrake's manservant. He had to be an equal participant in the team, didn't he, in 1986? You just couldn't do that.
4: No, you couldn't. Absolutely not. And I mean, and and the interesting thing about Lothar is when you read the Mandrake stories, you recognize he's probably a con man. You know, this whole, I'm the king of a lost civilization. Yeah, right. Okay, fine. You're the king of a lost civilization. He is a con man who has attached himself to Mandrake and and is, is sharing in Mandrake's adventures. And if you project him that way, He's a con man, and his con is to dress up in the leopard skin and to pretend that he's a king and this. Okay, all right, that works because he's a con man, but the audience has to know he's a con man. The moment you try to pass him off as that character who is now Mandrake's manservant, as you say, it cannot work. Problem with the pulps, they wanted to get to the action, to the good stuff, as fast as they could. And that's what made them entertaining. But in order to do that, they took shortcuts. If you know, going back to the westerns, I, I you know, if you if you read my blog, you'll you'll know. Last year, I watched about 50 old B westerns back to back, and I just gave little short reviews of them, and and I, I posted these on my blog. They they went for the simplest white hat, black hat explanations for things. And whenever they did anything that had the least bit of character complexity into it, or or a little bit of a plot twist, I mean you really sit up and go, wow, that was actually pretty good. But it really wasn't good good. It was just good in context. It was like, well we didn't we didn't go for the simplistic, you know, explanation this time. We put a put a little bit of thought into it. Pulp fiction too often relied on the cliches, the stereotypes. And one of the reasons that the few pulp-era works that broke out were the works of Dashiell Hammett and were the works of Raymond Chandler, where they were writing crime fiction, you know, and, and uh, James M. Kane and, and a few other, Jim Thompson and whatnot, though Thompson came later. These guys were writing crime stories. And in the crime story, the motive has to do with something about the character of the bad guy. And so you needed to have some explanation of the character beyond, well, he's, he's just a bad guy who likes to do bad things. And as a result, their stories had more depth, more resonance to them. You can modernize them easier because there's already some place to go with those characters. There's already, you know, some complexity of thought and complexity of morality. The other thing was was that the heroes were not white hats. The heroes were, uh, you know, as as, moral, as morally ambiguous as, uh, as the villains. In a lot of was, cases, I, they were straight-up jerks. You can adapt those stories much easier to modern audiences. That's one of the reasons, going back to Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes's stories, they have some kind of human character motivation driving the, the, the crimes. And Holmes himself is is what we would now recognize as a high-functioning, you know, autistic person. Those stories have that depth and resonance. You can do something with them. You can you can take the Hound of the Best Baskervilles, the sign of four, a study in Scarlet, and you can turn them inside out and reinterpret them, and people can recognize the original pieces, but they can also see how the original pieces can be put back together. To create something that fits for this time, you would be hard pressed to do that with Tarzan. You would even be hard pressed to do it with John Carter of Mars, because basically John Carter of Mars is Tarzan on Mars, and it it, it hinges on a Mars. I mean, and this is this is a cliche that that many a science fiction critic, you know, in the 30s and 40s was already pointing out. But you have your your stalwart hero from Earth. Who either travels into the future or goes to an alien planet that is run by a a total despot, complete authoritarian, you know, government and uh, you know crushing all opposition, and the the uh, hero manages in a very short period of time to um, organize a rebellion and overthrow the bad guy and, and end up getting either elected or appointed king of the planet. And no, that's not going to happen. You could, you could possibly have a very interesting story where you've got a character who is an outlier character who is, is an alien. He's a human who is an alien to that world who comes in and because of a different perspective is able to trigger events that lead to something else. But, you know, it's not going to happen the way that it does in the John Carter books, and it's not going to happen the way it did in Flash Gordon and stuff like that. Because for one thing, you don't have these... Evil maniacal villains who are operating completely on their own. You have evil maniacal villains who have very elaborate support systems and political alliances. You 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 can't have a worldwide authoritarian government if there isn't a certain level of efficiency to it. You know? Are you so, trying to say Cobra could never work? Well, that's the interesting thing because uh, if I may, my plug the book which I've actually got the first draft done on thank goodness, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, which is the Lost G.I. Joe episode that I've I've turned into a novel. I examined that, and I think Cobra could work if it was in the context of political movement that had a rationality for it and was basically saying we have come up with a better way of running society than anybody else and and the movement that i have is actually based on a chinese philosophy that predated confucianism in fact it it became subsumed by confucianism in the story we find out the guy who has the operating system basically the philosophy that that cobra is based on his idea was to create a worldwide organization that would conquer the world for its own good, and then administrate the world for its own good, but would never take advantage of it. They would have absolute authority, absolute power, but they wouldn't be building themselves palaces. They would be living very Spartan, you know, dedicated lifestyles. And what happens, of course, is the Cobra commander just takes the part about, well, you know, we know better, so we should rule the world, and he manages to recruit people using that. You can have that. You can have a philosophy, political idea and whatnot that has some basis that explains why people would flock to it. You have, for instance, um, you know, people are wondering, well, why in the world does ISIS keep growing and having success? Well, they're growing and having success because every time we drop a bomb... And we kill somebody, you know, like a kid or or an elderly lady or something. We end up recruiting a new ISIS member. And you know, the more we bomb them and the more we lash out at them, the more propaganda they have. I mean, look at the United States. We get hit by 9/11, and we we go crazy. We we attack Afghanistan, which at least that was where you know Osama bin Laden was based. We attack Iraq for no rational reason. We just go launch this war of terror against terror. We've been doing for the last 15 years, we've been hammering away at the Middle East. And the Middle East is frankly tired of it. And, you know, when, when somebody comes to them and says, look, we may be pretty hardcore here, but we're you. We are fellow believers with you. we come from this culture. We know this culture. We're We're your brothers and your cousins we're not like those people on the other side of the globe who are flying over here and dropping bombs on us that has a very strong recruiting power in the middle east and the fact that that i mean if if we should be grateful that that isis is as inept as they are but but if they were you know even halfway confident competent my goodness i mean we could really be facing problems over there i'm sorry i but but i mean this is this is you were asking a valid question, why don't the pulps translate? And the problem is, is that pulps run into the problem of too much information today. The pulps, when they were done, relied on people not having much more than a sixth grade level of, of information about anything in the world. Tarzan works only if you have the amount of education on Africa that the average sixth grader in 1900 had. You know, Fu Manchu works only if you come from a background where, you know, you you have no knowledge of what China really is or the forces behind China, what's driving it, what's motivating it. These things work only because there's a limited amount of knowledge that's needed in order for them to work. When you approach Africa with the amount of knowledge that a sixth grader in 1900 possessed, Tarzan is a great story. It is just a it's it is well written, okay? It's a it's a well written book, period. But it's just a great story and you can read it and you are never you never hit a speed bump of well wait, that's not what Africa's really like, or wait, there's more complexity to it than this. This thing that they're referring to happened fifty years ago. It didn't it's not an ongoing thing right now. We now have, even if you don't want it, you're having a ton of information dumped on you almost daily about Africa. You just you, you go on the internet and and you know news stories will be popping up at you coming out of Africa. Most people aren't very well informed on what's going on in Africa, but they've absorbed enough through osmosis that they go, you know, Tarzan doesn't work, does he? It really doesn't fit in today's world. The thing that hampers most pulp stories, unfortunately.
1: Do you think that's why what I'm going to call the children of the pulps worked better? Indiana Jones, Star Wars, let's face it, RoboCop and Snake Plissken are absolutely pulp-influenced characters. Do you think that's why people who grew up reading the pulps are kind of making the modern pulps, which are actually working? I mean, do you agree with me that, like, Snake Plissken and RoboCop are are basically pulp
4: characters? Absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. And and looking at them, you you again you see the complexity of their characters and their stories as opposed to the classic pulp era. Indiana Jones in 1930 would not have had anywhere near as as much of a backstory as he has now, and and he would not be this this world weary remarks like it's it's not it's not the age it's the mileage you know, about his own body, he would not be self-reflective the way that Indiana Jones is, okay, if he was done, if he had been done in the 1930s. He would have been a a far less introspective, far more outward, action-oriented character. And I mean, Indiana Jones is an action character. But the thing is, Indiana Jones has enough introspection about him that we go, yeah, he's, he... He has something that we recognize as a human being there. He is not just, you know, a big chin and a white hat, you know, going out to save the world. The, the Star Wars, it's the same thing. Star Wars is probably closer to almost any other modern thing to, to the classic, you know, pulps. But even there, it's been updated. And, and what's interesting is you cannot do things in Star Wars today that you could get away with when Star Wars first came out okay, Slave Girl Princess Leia is, is that's the line right there. And that's, that's the line where they said, okay, you can't go past this point. And the only way that Slave Girl Princess Leia is tolerated even now is that number one, she didn't want to put the costume on, she was made to put the costume on, and number two, she killed the monster that made her put the costume on. That's the only reason that that character is 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 even tolerated now, and you can't do that with with female characters in Star Wars anymore. You know, a society has been changing around us, and you can't have that 1970s attitude, and and you can't do that now. I mean, I don't know if if you if you have a chance, rewatch the original Star Wars, the the un modified theatrical cut. That is a relentlessly 1970s movie. I mean, it is it is just part and parcel of the 1970s in terms of attitude and everything else. Times change, you know, and, and luckily they are recognizing that those times are changing and they have to change with them. And being science fiction, they can make changes that aren't as jolting in their universe as, as similar changes might be with Tarzan, or similar changes might be with The Shadow, or something like that. Do you think
1: those changes might what's necessary? For instance, like, H.P. Lovecraft wrote From Beyond. Well, the movie From Beyond basically adapts the entire story in the first six minutes, and then the bulk of the movie is kind of a sequel. Is that yeah. the way you should really adapt a pulp, is just use it as the basis, and then go further?
4: Well, that's that's what Sherlock, the modern series, did. They they took that basic idea. And and you were talking about how Conan is, the Conan of the movies is the L. Sprague de Camp Conan. It is not the Robert E. Howard Conan. Well, the thing about Lovecraft is that most of what we know of as, quote, Lovecraft, unquote, is actually uh, August Derleth. Because Derleth was, was the executor of... Uh, lovecraft's estate and he put together all this stuff and he assembled it and he was the one who connected the dots and said oh well then you know this is related to this and that's related to that and he quote completed unquote supposedly a lot of unfinished lovecraft stories but in reality he, he took fragments that you know lovecraft had written Ideas, scenes that didn't connect up with anything, and he tied them all into this very elaborate thulu mythos. In the process, he also roped in other people who had used some of uh, Lovecraft's ideas. So now we have this very elaborate, you know, Thulhu mythos. We have we have a a Thulhu that's a the standard design of thulu now is is a humanoid shaped giant with bat wings and basically an octopus for a head. Not what Thulu is in the books. Thulu is is far more immaterial than that. He's not a King Kong sized monster stomping around. He's an entity. He is he is not material in the sense that we we you know that the this this image that we have of him is he is a- Eldritch since Lovecraft exactly. loved that word. Oh yeah, but I mean the point is again. The, the popular image now is, okay, that's Thulu, and now Thulu has been placed in a box, and he can't get out of that box. It's the same way that Tarzan has been placed in a box, and Tarzan, as I said, it's basically Johnny Weismuller. Frankenstein is Boris Karloff with the big blocky hit. I, you know, it doesn't matter how faithfully you adapt the book in the future. It doesn't matter how ingenious your your makeup design is. If it doesn't look like Boris Karloff's 1932 version, if it isn't lumbering, if it isn't just grunting, it's not Frankenstein. It's just the way that audiences perceive it, and you get trapped in that.
1: I, I I think it's the same thing with Flash Gordon. You know, you mm-hmm. had the Buster Crabbe serials and all that, mm-hmm. and then you had the brilliant 1980 movie, and then you had that horrendous Sci-Fi Channel series, which said, "Let's make this serious and angsty." And you kind of went, "Wow, you guys don't understand what Flash Gordon is, do you?"
4: But again, Flash Gordon works because Mongo makes no sense. It it, it literally the the Flash Gordon comic strip, Alex Raymond took total credit for it, but he had at least one writer who was writing for him and supplying him with story ideas and whatnot. And basically, when you look at the, at the Flash Gordon stories, you recognize whatever the writer saw at the movies that week, that's what ended up in the Flash Gordon serials. I mean, the Flash Gordon comic strip. So if he went and he saw a uh, what's referred to as a Ruritarian story and that means a a prussian style story where you've got you know characters dressed up in uniforms and you know court intrigue and stuff like that if you had seen a movie like that well that's the uh the world that's what mongo was involved in that week and if you saw a caveman movie well flash went to the part of mongo that had cavemen but i mean you end up with this nonsensical world where nothing fits together, and you have this, this tyrant who manages just through sheer force of will to get people to do things for him. It's a gorgeous thing to look at. It's beautiful. It makes not a lick of sense. It's, it's actually, I mean, I, I, uh, I had a chance uh, about five years ago. A friend asked me to do a little bit of house-sitting for him. He had the complete Alex Raymond Flash Gordon series, you know, Bound. And so I just said, well, I'm going to read Flash Gordon while I'm I'm house-sitting. And I read the entire thing from beginning to end, the, the Alex Raymond portion of it. And it's one of the most boring stories in the world when you read it from end to end. Because basically, Flash, Zarkov, and Dale are chased, and one or two of them get captured. So the other one has to rescue them, and then they get chased again, and then another couple of them get captured. And so a different one has, they just take turns getting captured and rescuing each other. And I mean, and, and, and what brought Ming the Merciless to the end was just that Raymond got tired of doing the same thing over and over. He really didn't like Flash Gordon all that much. The the thing he wanted to do was what he did after World War II. It was Rip Kirby. And Rip Kirby is, is artistically, it's it's even better than, than Flash Gordon. It's just not in a fanciful world it's set in our world but in terms of story in terms of character far more complex far more in but you know flash has the spaceships and the ray guns and everything else there's going back to branding we have flash Gordon we have Buck Rogers kind of won by being first because we, we can still refer to that crazy Buck Rogers stuff as science fiction okay but you don't who knows Brick Bradford Brick Bradford was in almost as many newspapers as uh, as as Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, everybody's forgotten that character now. There were a bunch of other science fiction characters in the in the 30s and 40s in the 50s. They're forgotten because they they didn't have any depth. I mean
1: let, let's leave the the racism out of it because I think the rock is perfect casting for Doc Savage.
4: Oh I love that
1: yeah I, I, I mean he is dead on perfect casting. Mm -hmm. But do you think with Shane Black at the helm, Doc Savage could really make his way into pop culture now? Because, let's face it, the 70s movie
4: wasn't so great. Oh, the 70s movie was awful. I mean, I I liked some of the looks of it. I thought thought they made very ingenious use of uh, Art Deco buildings in Los Angeles. I think Ron Eli was wrongly cast. He's, he's simply, he was an adequate Tarzan when he played Tarzan on TV. He's he's simply not Doc Savage. I think The Rock is perfect for Doc Savage. I think, I and I hope, Shane Black delves into Philip Zay Farmer's fictional biography of Doc Savage, which was... Uh, it was, his full, it was his follow-up book to Tarzan Alive. It was called Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life. But the thing about it is, and this is something that Philip Jose Farmer touched on, and I hope Shane Black at least keeps in the back of his head. Doc Savage is the result of a experiment by his father. He, Doc Savage's name is Clark Savage Jr., and his father decided he wanted to create perfect human being and he raised him in a environment that we would now look at and say was horrific, was terrible. You know, was not allowed toys, was not allowed spontaneity. Was It'd not be child abuse just, today. It would be child abuse exactly. Has overcome that, but he has nothing in his life except applying everything that he has absorbed, you know, and, and applying it to good, as much good as he can possibly do. And that's what makes him, in that sense, an interesting character. As as horrific as his background is, he is striving to do something positive with it. And and as a result, he he has recruited, you know, this this uh you know these five guys that hang out with him, though really only Ham and Monk are the only ones that really do anything. The other three are just, you know, they're they're just kind of like supernumeraries in the background. If if Shane does anything else, I hope he he fleshes out Doc's team so that the team is is as interesting as Doc is. And I also hope he brings in Patricia Savage, which is Doc's cousin, because when, when Patricia Savage was introduced to the series, she was like a big breath of fresh air. I mean, she was sassy. She had her own attitude. She as smart as Doc was, but she hadn't been through the same horrendous background. And I mean, when when she's in the stories, they're a ton of fun. The the to me, the best Doc Savage stories were the very early ones, where where the the world of Doc Savage was being established, and then the latter ones where the Lester Dent started reflecting the real world more and more. And again, what the line of demarcation. It goes back to World War II. By the time the Doc Savage series of pulps was coming to an end, they had gone through World War II. They realized the simplistic adventures that predated World War II were were no longer viable. And as a result, the Doc Savage stories became more of what we would call crime thrillers or political thrillers today. They still had a fantastic element to them, but they were much more rooted in at least recognizable motives and whatnot.
1: I always felt um, some of the ones that I was reading in the in the 80s, which I believe were from the 60s and 70s, were very much James Bond influenced. They were spy thrillers with fantastic elements, weren't yeah, they?
4: Yeah. Oh, they, they were. They were. But they also had completely fantastic stories as well. You can't... Keep Doc Savage a real character in the real world, and have him go into the Sargasso Sea.
1: Do you need to have him straddle a line? Like, uh, you remember the 1980s, *The Return of Captain Invincible*? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like that—that that, I think expertly straddled that line between being completely stupid and being absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. Is that what you got to do for Doc Savage? You got to straddle that line.
4: I think I think with Doc Savage. Because because the thing about Doc Savage is he he was kind of also a proto Scooby Doo in this sense. A typical Doc Savage story, they encounter some fantastic element, character, an incident, something that is fantastic, and then by the end of the story, you realize ah there was a rational explanation for it. You know it was it was a guy in a costume. It was um, you know he they had tricked out some vehicle to look like some. But there was always a, a rational, real-world explanation. I mean, it may not make perfect sense, but like Scooby-Doo, it was—it wasn't a ghost; it was a guy in a costume. You either do what they've done with Scooby-Doo, which has been to push Scooby-Doo completely into the fantastic realm now, and say yes, there are ghosts, yes, there are demons, and he's encountering them. You—you you keep it realistic, and you have something fantastic appear. It's something that can be dealt with. In a rational way. Doc Savage has to pick one of those camps to be in. And as long as it's a camp that they stay in, it'll be okay. But they can't switch back and forth. So if they want to have Doc Savage in a fantastic 1930s where there were still islands with prehistoric monsters on them, where you had yetis and werewolves and stuff like that, fine, put him in that world, make it that world. But you can't go back and forth. If it's going to be the real world, it has to be the real world. And the moment you say it's the real world, then the entire real world comes in, if you follow me.
1: So would you say then that to do a pulp movie right, the audience has to give a little bit? They have to accept that the pulp is where it's coming from. Because like one of the things that John Carter, one of the major criticisms of it, was that it looked just like a modern movie. It felt just like a modern movie. It didn't
4: feel like a pulp. If you've got an absurd pro, you know, if you've got an absurd element to your story, don't try to hide it. Don't try to work around it. Just embrace it. And the thing about superheroes is, and, and one of the things that I think the Marvel movies do well, is they just... Embrace that absurdity. Okay, we, we have got people with these fantastic abilities, and we're just, we're not going to try to be rational about it. We're just going to accept the fact that they can do crazy, goofy things and go with it. As a result, their movies, the, the Marvel movies, are tons of fun. I, I'll say one last thing about Pulps. Pulps were created as a genre to fill a marketing need. Because basically what happened was, it's a complicated story. When Prohibition ended, the gangsters needed something to sell. They had a distribution system that took material to drug stores, to candy shops, to cigar stores, where all their bootleg liquor was being sold. They had a distribution system in place that could deliver stuff there. And the pulps and the comic books were the easiest thing for them to put together and push and sell there. And they had no desire for literary quality. They just wanted material that they could shove in and sell. As a result, there wasn't the push for good quality writing that you had in what would be called the slick magazines, like the Saturday Evening Post, Liberty Colliers, things like that. We don't have that kind of motive in our fiction now. We can write anything you want to write and publish it online or publish it self-publishing or whatnot and find an audience for it. But there's no impetus, no pressure to just crank it out as fast as you can the way it was done back then. As a result, and because the world around us has been changing and becoming complex, and, and it's just without getting into any specifics, people who have simplistic political solutions are looked on with increasing suspicion in this world because it is more and more difficult to convince people that there's a quick and easy solution to anything okay and the pulps promised a quick and easy solution you know and and not not for any ideological reason but just because you know if if the story was going to end on page 100 it was going to be all tied up nice and neat in the bow, the bad guy would be dead, the hero would get the girl. No question about it. We don't have that pressure now. We have audiences that have become more sophisticated in terms of what was done after the classic pulp era. If you want to take elements of the classic pulp era, and I and I think Doc Savage is is one character that has enough Hidden complexity to him that he updated without getting heavy and angst ridden, but he could be updated and people could look at it and go, "Yeah, okay, I can accept Doc Savage. I can believe Doc Savage in this context." But the truth of the matter is, most of the pulp characters were not very well written. They they the stories were fun because they were imaginative. They had crazy things going on in them. They were they were enjoyable for that reason. But it's it's the same. It's why we have Star Trek fandom, but we really don't have Space Patrol fandom. Okay, Star Wars looks like a 1970s film. It's it's, I and mean, I'm talking the first one. It's almost completely white. It's like 99% male. The the um, you know Princess Leia taking charge of her own rescue. Everybody got a big kick out of that because you know it was it was reference liberation and feminism and whatnot. But you know. After she, after she helps them escape from the Death Star, she's pretty much just sitting in the background waiting for the heroes to go do something. It, it very much reflected 1970s attitudes. Star Trek, and whatever criticisms you might have against Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek reflected Roddenberry's thinking of what society would ideally be like hundreds of years from now. And even though he didn't get it right, necessarily. He was at least thinking in that direction. That's why Star Trek has this huge fandom and people following it, and it's iconic. Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, and Rocky Jones, forgotten. Fireball XL5, forgotten. Star Trek is still living. If you want to take the look and the feel, you can probably do that. You can probably adapt classic pulp looks, classic pulp feels. Certainly you can adapt the the pace of the stories, but you can't do Fu Manchu. You can't do Tarzan. You can't do a lot. You can't do, um, and as I said, I'm going to be very curious as to uh, what the reaction is going to be to Doctor Strange because they're already getting a lot of pushback. It's, it's um, It's not the world that the pulps were created in anymore.
1: After listening to what Buzz Dixon had to say, do you wonder if the modern pulp movies that we already know are coming out are going to be able to create the balance that we talked about or the tone that we talked about? Are they going to have to be? Are they going to have to be completely changed to be able to be adapted, such as Shane Black's new Doc Savage movie, which I don't. As I said, told Buzz, I don't care about the racism angle. People saying, "Oh, Doc Savage shouldn't be black." First of all, he's not white even. He's bronze. The Rock is perfect casting for that. Perfect casting for that. Mountains of Madness from Del Toro and whatnot. Or, sorry, is that Ron Howard now? Well, the, the, the big H.P. Lovecraft movies. You've got Richard Stanley doing a Lovecraft movie now. What do you think about these on the horizons? Are they going to learn from what caused Tarzan and John Carter to flop? Or are they just going to tread along the same road?
2: The directors, like if you get a Spielberg or um, Ron Howard or somebody, they're going to have the clout to basically make it however they see fit. Then you have the guys like Richard Stanley, the um, who is a really good director. A lot of uh, his version of uh, the movie is going to depend on how well his current movie does. So if he does the island of dr bro like he's supposed to and it actually comes out it does well he'll have a lot more backup what he's going to do you know it's always you're always kind of dependent on your last hit uh, if somebody has like a monumental hit, they can call their own shots with the next film and they get a lot more leeway. And then if they do a movie and it flops, well, then they're going to get a lot of second guessing from the uh, producers and uh, a lot more meddling that they, they may
1: have. And someone like Stanley doesn't exactly have the best track record when it comes to box office hits. Although, honestly, I'm really looking forward to his version of Color Out of Space.
2: Uh, all, I, I just want more movies from him.
1: Like uh,
2: that, you know, I I'm just ecstatic that he's actually coming out of retirement and, uh, you know, the somewhat forced retirement from Hollywood and actually making movies, because I think in this day and age, he would probably be able to make some amazing films for very little money. I mean, if he could uh, get his own. If he can get a, a production company properly going, have like one big hit, and then just continue to ride off that, make like five million dollar movies, he would just make some incredible movies with not
0: a lot of money. Because I've been looking forward to to Mountains of Mendes and, and Doc Savage for the longest time now, because those have been set for set for films for a very long time. Like I know that Del Toro wanted to do a, a Lovecraft film. For like the longest time now, and it keeps getting setbacks, and uh, I'm I'm really, really keen to see that one because I think if if anybody should make a Lovecraft film, as far as like modern filmmakers go, he really, really knows his. Uh, when you see stuff like um, just the visual aesthetic of movies like Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth, he really knows it. And it's going to be really, really fucking awesome, I think. And with um, Shane Black doing Doc Savage, well, to me, that that could only be awesome. Like, I can't think of that not being good. I've been hearing that they're going to get The Rock to play him. And that could only elevate the film even more because really, who, That's who else That's dead is play? perfect casting. Yeah. Like, who else is going to play Doc Savage other than The Rock? He's like the hardest motherfucker in action right now, and you need somebody like that for Doc Savage. So that's going to be beautiful. There's no way they could fuck that up. And if they do, uh, I don't know, I might cry. It's sad to say that
3: we see that they do repeat the same mistakes uh, no matter what. We also see we're currently uh, looking at a different market. You know, movies are being made to sell in China more than they're being made to sell in America. And that makes me wonder... When the overseas market is is so integral to products that are inherently American in design, how is that going to affect it overall? It's something we, we can't just dismiss outright. I, I much like Peter, I hope it doesn't. As it's already been stated, the rock is a perfect choice. I, I honestly cannot think of a better choice. I, I literally cannot somebody's got to write that script. Somebody's got to direct it. Someone's going to have to say how much of this is live action, CG and set built. <sighs> and we've seen it over and over again. Um, people were getting surprisingly excited to see this new independence day because they were like, ah, the first was at least fun and look at the, the response to it. Uh, they were disappointed because it was an overindulgence in CG. It was heavily marketed. Uh, for a foreign market. Uh, they believe that influenced it. So
1: it, the fear will, I think the fear will always uh, loom over it. Do you think that the 70s exploitation films, while not being based on the pulps, are also really pulp films when you think about it? All of those crazy 70s action movies and the Chop Saki films films. I mean, you can't tell me Cleopatra Jones and, and The Lost Casino of Gold is not a a pulp film that just happens to have not been based on a pulp.
2: Yeah. I mean, they had the, uh, the aesthetic was there. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, movies that come out of various genres, genres, (laughs) genres that, uh, are not based on something. But have that feel to it. There's a lot of movies that are comic book movies, but they're not based on a comic book. There's a lot of movies that feel like it, you know, uh, like they'd be based off of a pulp novel, but they're not based off of anything. It's just they have that aesthetic, they have that uh, style about them. So, yeah, I could see that. I could see a lot of them, uh, you know, having that particular flavor and uh, running with that. Maybe the people who directed them were fans of that and that's what they wanted to make,
1: or it just, you know, you know kind of ended up like that one of the key elements of a pulp story was how lurid it was and how literally exploitative it was of its subject matter look at how many nazi exploitation covers you
0: had and how many jungle adventures and animals attack and all that one of the biggest examples that could be made is if those films didn't exist Tarantino never would have made anything like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs just like if the pulp novels didn't exist we probably wouldn't have the 70s and 80s uh, crazy exploitation films like the ones you you listed or stuff like Executioner Part 2 or or those just those really wild ridiculous overly saturated just fun sleazy films like those would not have existed without pulp same with like the whole uh giallo genre and everything like that that's that's totally attributed to, uh to pulp novels just as much as those films can be attributed to you know quentin tarantino essentially making exploitation fan films realistically
3: if we look at this thing if we back up and use our magnifying glass I, you know you could probably say there's like 20 guys that have shaped the last 100 years of fiction It just cycles through itself. Uh, I even saw an interview with Ray Bradbury recently where he was talking about when he started writing the very first story, it was a sequel to another story he read, I can't remember the author, set on Mars though.
1: It, it was actually a sequel to John Carter's Mars. It was, oh, okay. actually a sequel to, it was actually a sequel to Princess of Mars. He read that when it was first printed and he loved it so much that he wrote his own sequel to it that goes
3: to show you know that stories always cycle through themselves over the years it's it's inevitable uh the scarlet pimpernil becomes Zorro, becomes batman uh becomes i i can't remember the character's name but i just heard somebody say in the game of thrones the young stark daughter who learns to become an assassin she's being referred to as the batman of game of thrones
1: i think you left out a very key character in that transition, the scarlet pumpernickel from Daffy
0: Duck. <laughs> Dude, and uh, and Darkwing Duck. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
1: honestly, a lot of people say Darkwing Duck is a Batman parody, really he's more of a shadow parody, isn't he? Yeah, he is with the suit and the hat and everything.
3: Oh, and the voice, the Yeah, you know,
1: he's, yeah he's 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 actually closer and I don't think anyone as a kid watching Darkwing Duck realized that this was pulp influenced. Yeah. <laughs> well, what what
2: kid knew what pulp was? You know that that grew up at the Darkwing Duck times.
0: It was a great little nod for both adults and for kids. For the kids, it was Batman. For the adults, it was, hey, look, it's the shadow.
3: Well, see, that's just it right there. When I was growing up, my favorite thing was, and kind of still is, detective stories. Uh, I haven't read all these other pulps, the Edgar Rice Burroughs and that, but I read a lot of Ray Bradbury, and I did read a lot of detective fiction, all right? So everybody from Dashiell Hammett to Raymond Chandler. But when I was growing up, I liked a TV show called Remington Steele. The movie, you know, the show that made Pierce Brosnan big. And if you look at Remington Steele, it's it's pure ridiculous. OK, because, I mean, these are two detectives that have a chauffeur.
5: <laughs> All right.
1: I'd like to point out they have a chauffeur. And an actual Remington Steele Pierce Brosnan is an inept moron who's only the face because nobody, no one could accept the fact that Stephanie Zimbalist was the brains behind the operation. So she created a fake detective that Pierce Brosnan had, had to impersonate, but he was a moron.
3: Well, <laughs> I, I will, uh, disagree. With you. He wasn't a moron, actually. He was a con artist. He was actually very intelligent.
1: Well, OK, but he wasn't the detective.
3: No, he was not. In fact, uh, it was. Pointed out over and over and over, and this is where I was going that he quotes movies constantly throughout the show whenever they have a case. He'll go, Oh, this is like the Maltese Falcon, Romancing the Stone, whatever. So, a show like that obviously has its heart buried in the stories of old. I mean, Mm -hmm. quite literally. And ironically, the Stephanie Zimblis part, there was, I have a thing called the Big Lizard book of black mask stories black mask was a pulp magazine all your famous detective authors came from one of the authors and i forget i'm just forgetting names tonight but one of the authors was a pseudonym for a woman Hmm. and she's in there and so they wrote and for that and their stories were shaped by them as well i think it'll always have an influence i think it'll always be there
1: okay then to round out the night do you think that the pulp stories could still be enjoyed by tweens of today? Like, do you think a 16-year-old kid who maybe he really liked the John Carter movie could go and pick up some of the original John Carter novels or the original Conan novels by Howard or anything like that and actually enjoy them? Or do you think they are so much, the original stories, so much of their time that it's only the older get-off-my-lawn guys like us that can appreciate them for what they are?
2: It depends. You know, I mean, some people can uh, read Shakespeare and not have a problem with that, uh, with the the prose and with the way that it's written and the, uh, the particular stylings. And then other people, they just can't get beyond that. So the same with the pulp. They can't uh, look beyond the way that it's written and uh, really kind of get into it. And uh, it really depends on the person. So, uh, you know, it's like that with any kind of entertainment, you know, you get uh, people that can go back and watch the old uh, black and white films of like early Hollywood where the acting was very, hey, get over here, dames, see, you know, and and, (laughs) like you you just can't like I watch it now and I'm like, well, I, I understand that this was the way that it was back then. But a lot of them I just I can't deal with. And mm-hmm. um, it's the same with the the writing. It's like uh, it's just the way that it was then. A hundred years from now, people will come, you know, we'll look back on a lot of uh, the movies and the really good ones will always kind of rise to the top. But then there'll be uh, your, your standard fare, the stuff that we really love that uh, has kind of gotten cult followings and uh, uh, will maybe not appeal to them quite as much because of the ways that they're made
0: teenage generation can still enjoy a lot of pulp stuff because thinking back to when i was 16 you know i was reading uh lovecraft short stories Uh, i was into uh tarzan and conan you know not just like the tv show or the the movie stuff but i I was reading the the comics and the novels and, and stuff like that and i thought it was really cool and uh my younger brother who who is himself is only 19 now has also been into that stuff since he was about 15 14 years old not even just through me but for from finding shit from like his school library and, and reading up on it and being really into it like he he loves uh H P Lovecraft like one of his uh favorite uh, favorite stories are like the the Cthulhu mythos uh, based stuff and, and reanimator. And he loves uh, the, the Stuart Gordon reanimator film and he's loved it since he was 15 and still going on uh, 19. He's still very much into it. So I think if somebody like me, who's, who's only 28 years old, I mean, I'm I, I consider myself to be still quite young and it hasn't been that long ago since I first, Got into it like I was only a teenager myself when I first started getting into works of uh, of, of pulp writings and then transitioning into into the movies and uh, going back and forth as well like seeing something that was a TV show or a movie and then finding out that it was a, a book or a comic and going back and reading it and looking at that so I, I think with it all being out there with everything there available for purchase or to be to be taken out of a a library or to be found at a at a comic book store all of it is available for anybody who wishes to venture out and find it if you want to find it you can if you don't want to you know you don't have to it's open to everybody
3: well i'll tell you what i'm gonna i'm gonna play the cynic of this group and i'm going to say ultimately on a larger scale no sadly no we represent a very small percentage and it's becoming more and more a reality that, that people that want to seek out uh, n- new and old, old forms of entertainment are becoming a more rare thing. Uh, Cecil just said about the, you know, the, yeah, guy, yeah, I love old movies. I mean, I literally love them, but I don't love every one of them. Uh, Every so often I will watch an old one and I'll go, oh boy, I've no narrow margins been talked about for years, but this movie's just boring. I love the way they talk. I love the patter. There is a poetry to a well-written script from that era. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it is, it's a form of poetry and when it's done well, it's magic. And I think that's what Miller's Crossing, the Coen brothers film was trying to capture. And yet funny enough, Miller's Crossing is the movie that rarely comes up when the Coens are talked about. I think we're hitting a generation that because you, your point was will they pick up the book and read it and the answer I think is no. We I just saw the movie Pitch Perfect for the first time and haven't hated a movie more uh <laughs> it, I hate it more than the prequels. Uh, <laughs> I hate it more than just about any other thing people I'll probably hate it more than the new Ghostbusters movie and yet <laughs> I was telling my buddy about it and he says, "Oh my gosh, every time I go to pick up my daughter She's watching her copy of it. And sadly, again, no, I I don't think they have the patience to do it. Now, again, I'm not saying everyone. I'm sure somebody's going to listen to this. They're a 14-year-old, you know, and they have a stack of these things they bought off eBay. And Fred Fritz, you suck! You know, and that'll be the (laughs) comment. But I'm not talking about those individuals such as ourselves, this generation just we're we're slowly moving away and i guess it's just something we're gonna have to accept
2: i've sat through from justin to kelly i've sat through a hobgoblins glitter i've sat through so many movies the hottie and the naughty the um (laughs) you know what i i actually probably would but i i've only ever seen like a smidgen of it on cable i i believe i made it 10 minutes into uh, Pitch Perfect before
3: I bailed. I
2: just. Oh, wow. But
1: it's acatastic. tastic Well, when... oh,
3: I hate you. I hate uh... you for than and broccoli and bedtime. And... Do you aka-hate me? When. Mm. Uh... When the the movie, like the
2: opening was awful where the girl throws up for 10 minutes. And then when the dude was going, when, when everybody was going to college and the guy walks into uh, the room with his dorm mate and the dude has the, he's wearing a Darth Vader outfit and he has the whole room set up like star Wars. He's like, do you like star Wars? And I'm like, Oh, this is going to be this kind of movie. I'm out. I can't, I, I can't eat. Like, are, are you absolutely fucking kidding me? I made it further into Jack and Jill. I made it a, I made a half hour
3: into Jack and Jill before oh, I finally fuck. decided to jump. There this... is no point to this movie. There, I mean, seriously, it's no character has motivation in this story. No, and to tie it back into what we're talking about, that's exactly it. It's like it's garbage. I'm not talking because it's aimed at teens or poppy. I'm talking because
1: it's crap. It is pure garbage of a movie. Where, where could we find? cecil t being part of the weird tales generation
2: uh you can find me being weird over at uh, escapistmagazine.com, magazine.com goodbadflix.com and all of your favorite uh facebook's twitters and stuff although i'm kind of taking a break from social media this week because i just everything is pissing me off <laughs>
0: so and i'm too I'm, much I'm... uh too much pokemon go everywhere uh you
2: know amongst other things so yeah although there's been some pretty uh, there was a very funny pokemon go at a strip club that uh that made me chuckle so w- what
1: would happen if a cop shot a black pokemon go
2: pokemon no
1: i don't know pokemon lives matter oh god oh,
2: Shut
1: up. <laughs> all right i'm not touching it okay where can we find Peter's startling
0: stories gajik you can find me detoxing over on Twitter at Cinematica, over on Facebook, The Cinematicist, over on YouTube, The Cinematicist, and on 1201beyond.com as well with a bunch of other cool, funky people. Where can we find Fred? Amazing stories, Fritz. Well, you can find me in a smoky
3: room dealing cards to a bunch of mugs and dames. Uh, I bought a domain, <laughs> everyone. I don't have to say Facebook all the time. Uh, it's still not formed yet, but it's... Uh, www.saintstoryteller.com and I'll be trans I'll be phasing out the movie apocalypse Facebook and there's got it I got the saint storyteller Facebook but that's where I'll be uh, hopefully within about a month or so as I prepare this short film
1: and I will be haunting the Eldritch night at 1201 beyond.com and you can contact this show at 1201 beyond at gmail.com remember the pulps formed the basis of all the stuff you love today so give them a shot and I say this to Hollywood too. You stop giving them a shot. Quit it. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Fine talk from a sociopath, paranoid, schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur. Thank you. You'll never change. And you will never win. Now, let's see. During our long association, you have uh, changed brands quite a few times, haven't you? To begin with, it was Retsina, as I recall, with just a little dash of hemlock, and then your long flirtation with Cognac, during which you did rather overdo the Napoleon. And most recently, fine Kentucky bourbon. Might I say that I'm old fashioned très today That I want a fresh Manhattan with white Anglo Saxons everywhere A black Russians no pink lady give her the Singapore sling and Moscow mule is not your baby, so highball the vodka and name your sting. Be a big shot with a bull shot, be a swine, mi Have a shot or a pot or a snort of any sort. Asti spumante, uno chianti. Party fine I got some vegan army cocks A gin and tonic on the rocks Where angels fear to tread I Say, choose your foes Let's hit the red eye Think of young Deanna Durbin And how she sung on rum bourbon Or enhance your luncheon hour With a planter's punch and a whiskey sour If you feel like a wreck Try a horse's neck Or a sherry with a cherry In the new fantasize If you don't need your poison, I'll have to get the poison, the spirit of adventure opens one's eyes. If you don't name your poison, I'll have to get the poison, and you'll never see another you feel a soul. Happily ever after With a shabbly and some laughter Between the sheets is lovely With a disy blonde and a buckle of the bubbly There's nothing sicker in society Than a lack of liquor and sobriety So, down the hatch, here's mud in your eye Take a bracer with a chaser, wash it down with rye bottoms up stirrup cup it'll put you in the pink and all you have to do is drink 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 drink, drink.